Welcome to Clareton Conversation, a podcast of voices from the creative industry. Here, we explain voices about how we ended up where we ended up, and we share great works of art that inspired us and that we, in turn, create. These are our first few episodes, and we're really pleased that we've had the opportunity to come together. My name is Katie Espester, and I'm the editor and publisher behind Claret Press and Clapham Publishing Services. I'd like to start off this show with a story about the theme tune that's just played. It starts off all the podcasts. It's written and played by Stuart James, who is a journalist and a short story writer, and also a fabulous musician. He's part of the Burrick Brothers, a blues band here in South London. Stuart has been guiding my late night listening with a kind of curated best of the blues recommendations, which I'm really enjoying. So I asked him if he could please compose a little, uh, a few little riffs, a little riff for us to, to highlight this um, podcast. And he sent me this music while apologizing for the sparrows in the background. He recorded it in a quiet place with his guitar and an iPhone, but he couldn't get the birds to cooperate. And I love that, and I insisted that we keep the birds in. It perfectly sums up what it's like when you're in the creative industry, and you want to produce something of a BBC standard in your own backyard. With technology and a bit of luck, it's occasionally possible. But in this instance, Stuart had birds as backup singers. And in my opinion, it's actually a lovely piece of music as a result. So many thanks to Stuart James of the Burke Brothers. We hope to get him onto this podcast in the future sharing his songs. But now to our guest of the day, Sarah Gray. Sarah Gray has been storytelling all her professional life. As a writer and filmmaker, she loves to explore the darkly comic side of life. She has published two collections of short stories, Surface Tension and Half-Life, and her third collection, Urban Creatures, is coming out soon. Her work has been praised by other best-selling authors, such as Tracy Chevalier, who wrote Girl with a Pearl Earring and Remarkable Creatures, among other bestsellers, and beloved British broadcaster Claire Balding. So thank you for joining us here today, Sarah, and um, congratulations on having such um, a roster of famous people who love your work. Thank you, Katie. How would you characterize your work? Would you say it's paranormal, ghost stories? Like what? It seems to almost fall between stools, your writing. I like to think of it as kind of supernatural psychological stories. I like to think that each character could only be uh, haunted by that particular supernatural creature. Like what kind it, of creatures are we talking well, about here? all sorts of things, from mermaids to angels to past selves. Vampires? Uh, not yet, but hopefully <laughs> I am going to be writing something about vampires very soon. Okay, good. From my perspective, uh, reading them, some of them struck me as being almost kind of really intelligent ghost stories if, if, uh, that adults would read, you know, in the, in the style of, um, of um, E.L. James or someone like that. Uh, and the other one struck me as being far more... Modern, I suppose, you know, because they're dealing with how you deal with anxiety, depression, um, loss, confusion. And I'm not even sure they necessarily needed to be, you needed to have angels in there, much less mermaids and, and ghosts. So it, it almost struck me, you, your work kind of straddles um, a very broad genre. Um, I think that genre fiction is a really good way of talking about the human condition. So for me, it's wrapping up something potentially difficult like 
domestic abuse, depression, anxiety, uh, and death into very exciting uh, tales, you know. So that's why I think they work very well for adults because they're very uh, psychological, psychologically complex, I think. Oh, yeah, they're very complex. And they're very gripping, too. You know, when you read your stuff, if you want to make a point about, as you were saying, domestic abuse or, or, or um, anxiety, it's, the message is there, but it's, what you're actually doing is reading something quite gripping. So that's pretty much, of course, why I'm sure better people than I have praised your work so highly. I think that it's about finding the right story to fit the meaning. And when I'm writing, I always think very carefully about what I'm trying to say in terms of the meaning before I come up with characters, plot, structure. So I think that having a clear goal about what I'm trying to say is really at the heart of all the stories. And then the other things follow. So, uh, for example, take Bruised, which is about domestic abuse. I really wanted to make a point about domestic abuse, how silent it can be, how people are tortured behind closed doors. But I put that into a really neat ghost story which could also be seen in the same way as something like The Turn of the Screw as a psychological story about somebody having a breakdown. So for me, I have a clear understanding of what is happening in the story, but for the reader, they might think, oh, is this something they're making up in their own mind or is it actually a ghost? So there's always that... Um, yeah, ambivalence. Yeah, the yeah. question being asked throughout the story, which I think adds a little bit of a frisson to it. Yeah, in your story, Bruised, um, I have to admit, I assumed that there was no ghost. And I just assumed that she, that was almost a, a manifestation that only she could see, a physical manifestation, you know, which came across as being a ghost. It was a very clever device you had for exploring that whole side of people's personality, the self-loathing and the um, confusion and how to act and Ooh. we bring ourselves down you know as that character does in the in the book well the ghost brings the character down or gives it his level best I think that's why I think of them as individual hauntings rather than it being a haunted house where everyone is privy to this kind of like the the woman in white or whatever who haunts these are particular entities that are holding up a mirror to the lives of the protagonist and I think that for me that's why they work so well and that's why I enjoy about finding out about my characters what their kind of nemesis is you know mm -hmm. so I think that's what makes it quite exciting. Mm -hmm. Most people when you when you take writing courses and stuff like that they say you know you always lead with the character but one of the things I find interesting is you just say you start with the concept and you allow the concept to find the character. Absolutely, and I think for me it's very much about the meaning because if the meaning doesn't hang together, then I think the story doesn't hang together. Absolutely. Well, that's interesting. So, Sarah, um, for the readers who are listening to this, I'm sure you hear a small hum in the background and a bit of a whoosh, and that is your breathing apparatus. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things it is so extraordinary about your books and your writing and indeed you is the fact that you have motor neurons disease. This has got to influence, well, obviously, everything in your life. I mean, it, I don't know how you ever managed to escape from this enough to actually sit down and create. You know, I find that extraordinary just in and of itself. 
Um, can you tell us a bit about how you do that? Um, I think it's about how you choose to live your life, or I choose to live my life. For me, it's important to have a meaning, to have a thread to the real world, and I think work is exceptionally important to do that. I'm lucky enough to be a writer, so I can do that from home. I can use the apparatus that I have. I have voice activation software, so even though I can't type, I can dictate. So I'm incredibly lucky that I have a setup whereby it enables me to continue writing. So how much movement do you have, Sarah? What can you? Uh, I can move my head, my face, anything above the neck. Yeah, but for me, it again, like my stories, it's about the meaning. You know, I need that meaning in my life. Otherwise, what would be the point? I'd just give up. I could just sit and watch the telly all day, but that isn't something I choose to do because it wouldn't engage me. Writing is a really central part of my life and something I love doing. And I have to get those stories out there. I have to do it. It's, it gives meaning to my life. And one of the ambitions I always had as a younger person was I wanted to do good creative work and share it with other people. And I'm lucky enough to be to be able to have done that. But you've done that under conditions that nobody would begin to suggest were... I'm not sure lucky. I, I'm, I'm struggling with that word, Sarah. You know, it's like that... Would, you know, there's, there's, there's luck and there's luck. You know, this... You'd seriously say that you're lucky enough to be able to write. Yeah, given the circumstances, I try and make the best of it. That's all I can do. That's all anyone can do when they're thrown such a curveball as MND, you know, and... Uh, just because I've got a disease that is going to end my life prematurely, I don't see any reason to give up living. And there are ways of doing that. You know, a friend said to me once that there's no such thing as disability, it's just the environment you live in. So if you have the right equipment and the right setup, you can, you can live, you know, you can be functional. And that never comes home to me more than when I'll hoist breaks down and I'm sitting on the sofa thinking actually now I really am disabled. Because you've got a broken hoist rather than because you're paralysed. Yes I think okay I can't move now I really can't move now whereas because my equipment is gone. So you see I think that it's about the way you see things and how you perceive the world and yourself and uh, I've got no intention of giving up. You just have to keep going whatever the circumstances and I'm sure there will become a point where I get fed up and and I'm not saying every day's rosy, you know, sometimes it's hard, you know. Mm -hmm. I would love to run down the street. I would love to put on my beautiful painted shoes and walk down the street. Yes. That's not possible, so there's not really much point in me crying about that. So, for me, writing is just such a crucial part of that. It's about, it gives me connection to people and the world and meaning. And the meaning is really, really important to me. And how has this, uh, this disease you've got... Um change the way you tell stories, change the kind of stories that you tell? In essence, I'm not sure that it's changed my dark sense of humour. I think I always wanted to talk about things that people would might maybe roll their eyes at, like domestic abuse, but like we've discussed, uh, dressed up in a kind of spooky way. So in that sense, it hasn't changed, but I have written some stories that are very blatantly about my experience of being diagnosed with MND and my experience of maybe people, uh, how they respond to me, different professionals, how they respond to me. Yes. For example, in the upcoming collection, I've got a story called Raspberry Report, which is about a therapist. 
and the relationship between the therapist um, as someone who is paralysed and uh, I think that is quite a, a, a good way of expressing some of the frustrations of being trapped, you know, mm. in your body sort mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I think would surprise people if they read your stuff was how you do manage to mix the comic and the mm. profound. You, you've got an ability to write a, a line that is kind of sarcastically quiet, if you know what I mean. Like I'm thinking, there was one of your short stories, Half-Life, which the NHS has requested that they could use to help train their nurses who deal with people. I think it's all palliative care professionals. Oh, it's all palliative care professionals who are using it. Yeah, I mean, which is quite a compliment as well. Oh, absolutely. I was over the moon when she asked. Absolutely, as well you should be. That's fantastic. But there's a line in this where... Um, I don't want to ruin the story, but the, the 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 ghost in it is trying to reconnect to her husband and her sister, and and she goes, and she just can't, because she's a ghost, she can't do it, and she's like, well, this isn't what it all cracked up to be, and I could kind of hear this kind of, this dark, sarcastic kind of, oh, this isn't so great after all. It doesn't know? get better in death, even if you're a ghost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I always ask my guests if they could, uh, if they have one particular work of art that's particularly influenced them and, and made them want to choose to be in the creative arts rather than being a, a doctor, a lawyer, accountant. Um, which which uh, fav- Has there been any for you? Absolutely. I mean, over the years, obviously, they change. But I think looking back, when I first saw Kate Bush on Top of the Pops uh-huh. singing Wuthering Heights yeah. and in her <laughs> flowing white dress, this beautiful angel singing about Wuthering Heights, I was like, what is this Wuthering Heights? And I think that made me question, oh, there's other culture out there that I don't know about that isn't within my family, you know, that cultural capital wasn't kind of there, if you see what I mean. No, I don't. What do you mean by the fact that your family hadn't any cultural capital? Well, we wouldn't. There were no books in the house. Nobody was a literary giant, nobody read particularly, except, you know, my sister loved like The Hobbit and all that kind of stuff. But So Wuthering Heights was something I don't think I'd have really come face to face with unless it would have been... On top of the pops. Oh, yeah, yeah. unless lovely uh, Kate Bush. And so did you actually about, go out and then read the book, Wuthering Heights? Yeah, when I was, about, I, was, I was only about eight when it was on, so it was a bit... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it did make me question what is there and it made yeah. me realise there's something beyond my own experience yeah. that and the ghostly face at the window you know it's perfect yeah. you know it's for me that was such a marvellous moment you know everything yeah. Yeah, the whole package of the music yeah. uh, I've always had a real thing with Kate Bush ever since yeah, fair enough finished. too so she sort of opened my eyes to literature I think and then Obviously, I'm going to contradict myself because there was one person in my family who was really uh, into Shakespeare. It's my granddad, my dad's dad, and uh, I didn't know it. But I was joking around going to be or not to be, and then he continued with the whole speech. And wow. I was embarrassed because I was a kid, and I was also impressed. Yeah. And he had all these cassettes of Shakespeare plays. Yes. And... The first time I became aware of Shakespeare as a playwright was listening to a recording of uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> and I didn't really understand it, just except for there were fairies and people lovers. and uh, But it opened my eyes to, again, this world of storytelling and characters and intrigue. And 
magic. So those two influences really set me on a road of kind of, like say, magic, um, horror, ghosts, literature, you know, the whole thing. So after you've um, kind of discovered there's a whole nother world out there besides the what your family, you know, Shakespeare and art and literature, um, how did you go about kind of accessing it? Well, what was your well, next step? Well, it took me a long time because I uh, had difficulties reading as a, a junior level and I was in reading group up until... I don't know what the years of schools are now. It's all a little bit perplexing. What do you mean by a reading group? Reading group. So if you don't, if you're not up to the standard that yeah. is required of your yeah. age group, you go to a separate reading group and you have to read to one to one to a teacher Ooh. to help you to come up to the, the appropriate standard. I'm kind of surprised, Sarah. I wouldn't have. I mean, it's just counterintuitive that a writer and someone in the story making industry would be struggling to read. Do you think maybe you maybe a bit of dyslexia? Would that, might that have been the case? No, I don't think I'm dyslexic. I think I was just hard to teach. I... You're a difficult kid. Yeah, <laughs> quite quietly difficult. I would never make fuss, but if I didn't want to do something, I wouldn't do it. And my mum says, she tells a story about how when I started infant school, they couldn't get me to do anything until Easter. When, and that was making a Mother's Day card. And because it was making beautiful flowers out of tissue paper, I was keen to do that. So you think that that kind of strength of will is what's carried you through? Because the creative industry requires incredible strengths of will. You've got to just persist if you want to achieve in the creative industry. I, I, I think so, because I, I've always been able to pull things out of the bag. Even though I was not good at reading until, you know, much later, I still passed my 11 plus because I wrote a story. And I wrote a ghost story, and I remember it was about a, a spooky carriage. And I remember it to this day thinking, oh, this is easy, I'll just write a story about ghosts or some other rubbish, you know. And, but then I got to a certain age where I realised that if I did knuckle down and really apply myself, then I would be working in Tesco's, and no disrespect to people working in Tesco's, but I knew there was more in me, I wanted to do more, I wanted to achieve more, so I just had to... No, I don't think it's anybody's life ambition to work at Tesco's, you know, I, don't, <laughs> I, I, I totally, I, I think people who work at Tesco's and Sainsbury's and Asda completely kind of will be nodding in agreement going, yeah, this isn't where I plan to end up either. <laughs> so yeah, I just sort of knuckled down and got reading and just read as much as I could read at every classic I could get my hands on and just... And do you have a favourite classic? Oh, it's always... The Russians for me always say really? something. Yeah, I love them. So it would probably be um, Lolita is an absolute favourite of mine. Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of literature. Oh, it's an absolute beautiful piece of literature. Beat of my heart, love of my life, heat of my loins, Lolita. Oh gosh, yeah. and, and just the skill of that work, yes. just in a couple of sentences, he reveals that this is a child suffering, grieving and being abused, but it's so complex, oh, so it's, slippery. Now so, that's a psychological yeah. portrait, you know, almost second to none, because it's so self-serving. I mean, talk about an unreliable narrator, crikey. Mm. Like that's your definition of an unreliable narrator is right there. Absolutely. Because he's so narcissistic. And actually my other absolute favorite is Vanity Fair. Oh, who wrote Vanity Fair? William Factory. Thackeray. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Becky Sharp is 
a piece of work and one of the great female characters mm-hmm. of, of, of literature just yeah she I, steals a, she steals a peach doesn't it absolutely she absolutely yeah. does as she's cheeky and ruthless and yeah. she yeah. really does know how to work it and i just love it it's a long novel but i felt yeah. like it was only a few pages to me because it was yeah. so enjoyable yeah i love that that's and what what is your what's the piece of work that you've created that you're most proud of well, obviously, there are lots of things that I, I'm always pleased to have done once I've finished it, but I think that the story that I'm most proud of, I guess, when I revisit it, is probably the peer. Uh, it is, even if I say so myself, quite an accomplished and satisfying story. Would it um, ruin, ruin the story if we knew something about it? Like, I don't want to... I don't well, want to detract from the pleasure of discovering it, people discovering the pure. Well, I think it's already just a classic tale of a protagonist discovering, rediscovering their life, rediscovering their energy and their will to live. And it is done in a particularly personal, supernatural way. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to give it away, but uh, for those who may want to read it. It's in, it's in the collection Surface Tensions, which is available as a paperback, an e-book, and also as an audiobook. Um, both your books have been um, being produced as audiobooks as well by Central Audiobooks in New York. So if you like to listen to spooky ghost stories before you fall asleep at night, <laughs> then you can also listen to it that way. Mm. Um, and they're also available, the books are also available to be ordered through bookstores as well. So we have an audio clip of The Pier, very generously shared with us by Central Audiobooks, and so we're just going to listen to it. Anna had been watching the family for a while. Safe in the end of Pier Cafe, she held her Earl Grey tea in both hands, enjoying its warmth, inhaling the fragrant steam. On the beach, red, green, blue and yellow hearts clung together shrouded in grey. A teenager in the guise of a waitress stopped behind her. As she bent over Anna's shoulder, her fringe fell in front of her eyes. Flicking it back, she dropped a plate onto the tabletop. It clanked, then bounced as it made contact with the veneered surface. Thank you, Anna said. How does it feel like to hear your work being with a professional voice artist interpreting your work? Well, firstly, it's always an honour if someone likes your work and wants to recreate it in a different medium. That is really very exciting. Um, So, but secondly, I find it interesting how different readers might put different emphasis on different sentences. And when I listen to it, I always think, that's interesting that they've they've said it that way when I, in my head, I hear it like Mm -hmm. this. So that's always interesting. And also... The first time I hear it, it's always like, why did I use that word? Oh, my God, I just used that word a paragraph ago. <laughs> so why you're did, self-critical. Why, yeah, why did, why did I check? Why have I said the five times in that sentence? Oh, my gosh, what an amateur. <laughs> so it's all, that, it's all that kind of thing. You know, you really hear it back for what it is, and that's quite challenging. Do you think it's possible, Sarah, between one of the things that makes paranormal so timeless a feature... You know, so time is a, a genre, is that it shares the same thing as, as war. It's a very extreme end of the human experience. Absolutely, and anything can happen. If, yes. you're, if you're stating in your story that something supernatural exists, it means that anything can happen. The parameters have all changed, and you have to understand 
the rules of this new game that you're in. And I think a really good example of that would be the Heart of a Heartless World, where this poor chap, Henry Scott, doesn't got a clue what's happening to him in this forest. He's being completely pulled from pillar to post by this supernatural creature and he doesn't know how to, to get out of it. And that's the strength of the supernatural creatures that she has got him in her grasp and he has to believe he has to find his humanity again to get out of it and I think that that is what's exciting about ghost stories is that you're questioning humanity yeah and anything could happen or anything could happen but I think because anything can happen you can ask a, a deeper question of I actually think you put your finger on it when you say it, you question humanity itself. Mm, you, do. you know, and I think I think war stories do that, like like mm. Catch Twenty Two. Um, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five did it. Um, you you question what it is, you know, what essential characteristics is it about being human that yeah. are that that we're expressing right here. Yeah, what makes you human, and how can you live well and transcend the fact that you're going to die? You know, the ultimate question about the human condition is we all know we're going to die. And that is terrifying, but we still have to live at the same time. So do you think you got a bit of a leg up in that one, so to speak? Oh, definitely. With me having a terminal illness. Oh, absolutely. These questions throat, float through my mind every day. You know, I was asking the nurses at the hospice if they could download their brains to computers and live in a computer, would they do it? But they all looked at me as if I was completely because they said, well, don't you think there's a physical element? And I said, how do we know we could be in the matrix right now? <laughs> Brains in a vat. I know, exactly that. So it's kind of a... Do you know what? I, honestly, I'm not making this up, but when I was a, when I was a student at university, we, it was a core part of our studies was the brain in the vat problem. How do you know you're alive? How do you know you're alive? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like not, not even how do you know you're a human being, but just how do you even know that you're alive and breathing and you're not actually just a computer program? That you're just like a figment of somebody, some other uh, being's imagination. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The brain in the vat problem. How do you have any kind of knowledge of what is reality? Absolutely. And I think that having a terminal illness only intensifies the same questions that we all ask ourselves. You know, I know that my life is going to be significantly shorter than it would have been if I'd had this disease and had been diagnosed at the age of 42, you know. So... It's intensified, it's sped up. I'm experiencing the same things that everyone's experiencing, but I can't put those questions off, if you see what I mean. You know, people will say to me, oh, I could walk out in front of a bus tomorrow. I'll be like, well, yeah, but I can kind of see my bus coming. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of... It's getting closer mighty quickly. Exactly, and uh, that does change it. But although it's the same question, but just intensified... So I do think about it a lot, and I do think about how you keep going in the face of such knowledge. And how do you do it, Sarah? Uh, just by focusing on what you could... It's the old CBT thing, isn't it? You have to focus on what you can do and try not to dwell on the things that you can't do. And just take every experience at face value. Every. But you can't ignore it either. I mean, for no, heaven's sakes. It's a two twofold thing. You're doing all those things I've just said, as well as having that knowledge that, you know, it, it's going to end and it, it it can be quite terrifying at moments, knowing that... And does, it, does that work into your fiction at all, that, that fear that you just mentioned, that, that terror? Yes, it does, but I think that the terror has become 
has changed over time because when I was first going through the diagnostic process, I was terrified. And for about a week, I freaked out and had massive panic attacks and was saying to my sister, how could I bear this? But then over time, I found that I did bear it and I did wake up every morning and I did keep going. And then, again, you get to a certain point after a few months where you think, well, I'm still alive. Because you imagine it's going to be immediate, but it's not. And you don't know, I still don't know when I'm going to die, you know. And uh, so, again, you get back to after, I used to look at things like fireworks and think, oh my God. You used to look at, at things like that? Things like firework displays and think, oh my God, this could be my last firework display. <laughs> and then November the 5th comes around again, you think, oh, well, yeah, it's probably not going to be the last fireworks I'm ever going to see. So. So you get back to a sense of normality. Yeah. Yeah. Then you kind of reset the default position. Yeah. But then something can be upsetting. Like when I was in the hospice, four of my neighbours died in the room next to me. And although on a uh, conscious level, I could see that they had family that loved them, people that came regularly to visit them, that... They were loved and they were peaceful. It was quiet. It wasn't scary in that way. Uh, that stuff works away at the back of your mind, right? No kidding. Four of your neighbours, like, you know, one, one a week on average dies, right? And it does sort of get into the back of your brain. And also, I, I had to go into St Thomas's for a couple of days because I had a suspected infection. And it was such a horrible experience, I have a&E was frightening, there were people shouting and I asked the nurse, is this normal? She said, yeah, pretty much. Uh, and that puts you you on edge, you know, it makes you feel more nervous. And then I couldn't get onto my usual ward, which is a respiratory ward. So I had to go up to ICU, which was, I was put in this grip that basically like a cupboard with peeling paint on the walls. And, yeah. and if it wasn't for the wonderful nurse, the wonderful nurse who just talked me down, Every time I had a panic attack, she just talked me down and told me amusing stories about her children. And, uh, yeah. and that really can get into your psyche and you start, mm. you know, start to worry about, is this what it's going to be like when I finally get to that, that stage where I am, you know, end of life, you know. And, uh, I think one of the differences is that, you know, my mother's in her, in her mid-80s now mm. and... Um, almost certainly won't listen to this so I can talk about her. You can see she's a she's winding down. Really, really. Yeah, you know, she's like a clock that's running on a ticks. You know, mm. it it's and you think, whereas you're still full of energy. You know, for someone who's mm. paralyzed and sitting in a wheelchair, you're mm. still full of energy. You're very you know, you've got that life force is very strong inside you. Whereas I'm watching my mother's life force dim in a perfectly natural, organic, healthy way. And I think if she were to slip off, I don't think she'd fight it. You know, I think she'd think... Do you think she's afraid? I think she's afraid of being dependent. Going, you know, as, as many, many older people are, you know, being, you know, f f stuffed in some nursing home and forgotten about oh. and going gaga and not being able to remember who her children and grandchildren are. I think yeah, absolutely. 
But I, I think if she accidentally went under the wheels of a bus tomorrow, I, I, we'd all grieve. But I don't think she would be that unhappy with that. Because oh. I just think there's something different about a woman in her 40s and a woman, woman in her 80s dying. It's a different phenomenon. Well, I think because you, when you're 80, you're, it's... I'm not saying it's ever great to die, you know, I'm sure there are people who still want to keep going, but it's more expected, isn't it? And I think that whenever anything out of the ordinary happens, like a, an early diagnosis of maybe dementia or disease like MND, it is a shock. Yes. It's shocking. And people think, that's not right, that's not how it's supposed to be. I think that makes it harder, and I also think it makes it harder that there are still things I want to do, you know, I still want to write that vampire novel and I still want to write, you Excellent. know, the postmodern uh, autobiography and, uh, you know, I still want to finish those things. and Maybe do some stream of consciousness for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's really tricky, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. So I just still want to try yeah. doing things, you know. And yeah, your bucket I, list. Yes. You've got things still on it. And, you know, yeah. I probably wouldn't be able to jump out of a plane <laughs> was that at any point on your bucket list? No, Jumping out of a plane? No, but that's the sort of thing people say. Oh, is it? it? When, when, when you're facing death. Quick, jump out of a plane! Scale a mountain, <laughs> swim, a, swim a river, you know, it's kind of... Uh, uh, okay. Do all those, these, do all these <laughs> the physicality of being alive. Exactly, and affirming your kind of life force and all those sorts of things. But yeah, I think I'd struggle to... I don't think my, my neck would take that kind of G-force. <laughs> It's not. It's not on everybody's bucket list. Mm -hmm. In that regard, I think you're okay. You're not. Not that I've ever jumped out of a plane mm. or scaled a mountain, but I, I can't say that that would necessarily I'm missing all that much from my perspective. Mm. So what's next for you, Sarah? You talked about your vampire novel. Okay. You talked about a postmodern autobiography, okay. and of course you have your forthcoming collection of short stories, Urban Creatures. Okay. Yes. So the Urban Creatures. I'm looking forward. To to that being published. It has taken me a long time. It's been much harder to write than the first two. And I think that is because it's the first book I've written completely with the voice activated software. Also, I've had issues around pain and drug, uh, of course, getting medication. Yeah, this, this is, you know, as amazing as this technology mm. is, and it is extraordinary, as amazing as it is, it's not altogether perfect. No, it isn't perfect, you know, but at least I can get things done. And also, you know, the issues about pain I've had. So it's taken me a lot longer to write than the other two. Yeah. But I'm happy to say it's really come together, and I think it's going to be a really good collection. Fantastic. Well, so I'm very happy it. about that, yeah. And... When we came in here and you were trying to turn your computer some stop in recording or yes, our kind of, hello, Sarah, how are you? What is nice today? Yeah. And you kept saying, listening. Yes. Yeah. you kept saying, go to sleep, go to sleep. And then in between you'd say, no, it's lovely to see us. I agree. The website, like, go to sleep. Yeah, no, no, please just put your stuff anywhere. It doesn't worry about Yeah, go to sleep. Go to sleep. It was the, a slightly peculiar way of communicating. I'm used to it now because I'm used to this way of talking with you. But I can imagine if someone was recording us then, it might have sounded very peculiar. Well, when I was in the hospice, I, I, I would tell it to go to sleep when anyone came in the room. Everyone thought I was talking to them. They were going, what? what? Why should I go to sleep? And I just thought, how random. Why would you think I would tell you to go to sleep? But clearly I'm talking to my computer. Exactly. <laughs> clearly I'm talking to my computer. And I think by the end they kind of got used to it. But uh, at the first it was a little bit bizarre, you know, uh, for, for them to get used to. Uh, well, Sarah, thank you very much for talking to us. We wish you, you the very, very best with your treatment. 
And uh, we hope that you'll be with us for a good long time. I hope so too. Got a couple of books still in you from the sounds of it. Definitely. Okay, well then you got to stick around. I will. I'll stick around just to keep writing. Excellent. That's which we should all do that. Thank you very much to Sarah Gray. Her contact details are on the website, um, the Claret and Conversation website, and they're also available on the Claret and Conversation Facebook page. Great. Get in contact. I'd love to have a literary conversation. Uh, don't we all? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. So please do. Yeah, get in contact. <laughs> Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with the latest news, events and podcast updates. The newsletter is available through our Claret Press website or our Clapham Publishing Services website. Claret and Conversation is hosted by myself, Katie. It's produced by Alex Holmes and edited and engineered by Chelsea Moore. We've had additional assistance from Hugo Zhang.